Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 18, Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Alright, this week we are moving along in Leviticus, or rather uh, Genesis chapter 18, and um, last week we were looking at this episode where the three men came to greet Abraham, and we were trying to figure out who that was that was there. And we were told that they sat down under a tree and ate. And I find it not only too hard to imagine Yahweh eating food, it is also very difficult to envision angels eating food. So it's hard to know what to make out of all this. Yet it's pretty undeniable that something very supernatural is, is happening here. So permit me the folly of offering my own opinion about it. Now I have said on a number of occasions that while on the one hand I fully subscribe to the general notion of the Trinity, that is, that the Godhead consists of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I do not subscribe to the notion that therefore every manifestation of God must embody one of these three persons of God in the strictest sense. Yet could it be that the strange visitation of these three individuals was a model of the three-part Godhead? Maybe. But it really messes with the traditional Christian concept of what the Trinity amounts to if that was the intent. For instance, we have, when have we ever heard of the Holy Spirit assuming any human form? Christian tradition is that all physical forms of God are supposed to be Jesus. So, did we have three Jesuses standing before Abraham? Well, what else could these three have represented? What was the burning bush? What was the Shekinah? What was that cloud that led Israel through the wilderness? What was that angel of the Lord who identified himself as God Almighty to Hagar? Who wrestled with Jacob and now what are we to make of these three nondescript men who are somehow part of an appearance of Yahweh himself? I think we do a great disservice to ourselves when we attempt to artificially limit the possible manifestations of God to three, just so that it satisfies and kind of makes Christian doctrine nice and tidy and neat. And I think it is utter foolishness to believe that we can honestly subject God to any limits whatsoever. He exists in a way we cannot fathom. He exists in a dimension we cannot enter. We comprehend but the tiniest fraction of who God is, and sometimes we just need to get comfortable with that and leave some mysteries as mysteries. Now the prophets who had visions of things far into the future or others like John who got a glimpse of heaven found these things so difficult to describe and communicate to others. They had no choice but to use descriptive words of things from their time that they were familiar with. Animals, precious stones and precious metals, fire, 
stars and the moon. What else would they use? What would we use? Yet, what they were seeing was either spiritual in nature and therefore human words would never be able to capture it, or they were seeing so far into the future that words hadn't even been invented to describe things that hadn't yet been invented. I think we have a similar situation here with Abraham. Clearly, there is some kind of God thing going on, but there are no words to describe it. So the writer did the best he could, and you can be sure that some writer that came after him probably tried to help the words a little bit and has made it all the more difficult for us now. And I also doubt that Abraham could make heads or tails out of what was really going on either. It happened, they said what they said, it came true, and that's that. So let's read a little more in uh, Genesis, and we'll start reading at Genesis 18, verse 9, and go on to the end. Genesis 18, verse 9, and we'll move on to the end. They, meaning the three men, said to him, Abraham, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, Over there in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you around this time next year, and Sarah your wife will have a son. Sarah heard him from the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, thinking, I am old, so is my Lord. Am I to have pleasure again? Adonai said to Avraham, Why did Sarah laugh and ask, Am I really going to bear a child when I'm so old? Is there anything too hard for Adonai? At the set time for it, at this season next year, I will return to you, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't either laugh, because she was afraid. He said, not so, you did laugh. Well, the three men set out from there and looked over towards Saddam. And Abraham went with them to see them on their way. Now, Adonai said, Should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Inasmuch as Abraham is sure to become a great and strong nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by him. For I have made myself known to him so that he will give orders to his children and to his household after him to keep the way of Adonai and to do what is right and just so that Adonai be bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Adonai said the outcry against Saddam and Amorah is so great and their sins so serious that I will now go down and see whether their deeds warrant the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away from there and went towards Saddam, but Abraham remained standing before Adonai. Abraham approached and said, Will you actually sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Maybe there are 50 righteous people in the city. Will you actually sweep the place away and not forgive it for the sake of the 50 righteous who are there? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous along with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shouldn't the judge of all the earth do what is just? And Adonai said, 
If I find in Saddam 50 who are righteous, then I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, Here now, I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to Adonai. What if there are five less than 50 righteous? He said, I won't destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again, What if 40 are found there? He said, For the sake of 40, I won't do it. He said, I hope Adonai won't be angry if I speak, but what if 30 are found there? He said, I won't do it if I find 30. He said, How now, uh, here now, I have taken it upon myself to speak to Adonai. What if 20 are found there? He said, For the sake of 20, I won't destroy it. He said, I hope Adonai won't be angry if I speak just once more. What if 10 are found there? And he said, for the sake of ten, I won't destroy it. Adonai, Adonai went on his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Well, let's get back to something we can wrap our fleshly minds around a little better. In verse 9 is an example of a kind of statement we see often in the Bible. And these words are put into God's mouth or the mouth of an angel. One of the three individuals says to Abraham, Where is your wife, Sarah? Now this is a rhetorical question. This is simply a nice way to open a conversation about Sarah. It's not that these men don't know the answer. The fact is, spirit beings, and particularly God, has to dumb things down pretty severely to communicate with humans. So we get a lot of rhetorical and figurative statements subscribed to God and angels. So let's not go off on some tangent ascribing human attributes and frailties, imperfections and weaknesses to angels or to God because of those kinds of statements. Well, now comes the purpose for this mysterious visit. In verse 10, one of the three men informed Abraham that he was coming back in a year and that Sarah will have given birth to a son by then. Yahweh's promise to Abraham of a son has been coming about step by step. First, back in Genesis 12:2, God tells Abraham that he'll make Abraham into a great nation, which, of course, tells Abraham that he's going to have many children. Second, in Genesis 15:4, Abraham is promised an heir, and that heir will be the natural-born son of Abraham. And third, in Genesis 17, verses 16 through 21, Abraham was assured that it would be his wife, Sarah, who would give him that son. And now, here in 18:10, it's time to fulfill all those promises. Now, Watch this basic and elegantly simple God principle in action. Notice how each of God's promises build upon all the earlier promises. And how each covenant is built upon all the earlier covenants. A new promise or a new covenant doesn't replace or countermand an earlier one. It simply takes the sum of the earlier ones to the next level. When one builds a house, it starts with preparing the ground. 
and over that prepared ground a foundation is built. Now, one can no longer see the ground under the foundation, but obviously it's still there. Upon that foundation, the first floor is built. One can no longer see the foundation, but obviously it's still there. And upon the first floor, the second floor is built, and so on. One thing built upon the former. Without the ground, you can't have a foundation. And without the foundation, you can't have the first floor. And without a first floor, you can't have a second. Yet if somehow, magically, you could remove the prepared ground from under the foundation, the building would indeed collapse. If you could remove the foundation from underneath the first floor, the building would fall. If you could slide the first floor out from underneath the second floor, the building would instantly become rubble. Each portion of the structure of the house is dependent on the other. Leave one out or remove one, and the house is destroyed. That is exactly how God's covenants work. The new covenant, the covenant of Jesus Christ, is not a covenant that replaces the earlier ones, nor does it stand alone. The new covenant is dependent on all the earlier ones, and it is the fulfillment of all the earlier ones. Each covenant built upon the one preceding it. The promises of God to Abraham in bringing about an heir sets up this pattern about bringing about his will in stages, the same way you build a house. Well, Sarah, who was curious about these three guys, as anybody would have been, was listening through the tent walls, not very hard to do, I imagine, and heard what was said. She about dropped over from trying to stifle the laughter that wanted to burst out of inside her. Now, believe me, this was not an, oh boy, I can hardly wait for the baby to come kind of laughter. This was a, who are these yo-yos and have they got one good brain between them all kind of laughter. In other words, Sarah laughed in ridicule. Uh-oh, Yahweh says, why did Sarah laugh? Busted. God makes it clear that Sarah will have a son because he's decided it and it's going to happen within a year. Sarah then does the natural thing. She denied that she laughed. And God says, oh, yes, you did. Now, as odd as this encounter has been, even with Yahweh having this little argument with Sarah, it continues in yet another vein. From Abraham's tent, the three men set out for the wicked city of Saddam. And Abraham accompanies them there for a short distance. Now in verses 17, 18, and 19, we get a glimpse into something that we rarely do in Holy Scripture. We see into God's mind, so to speak, and we are given the reasoning behind the decision of God. Now I've told you on more than one occasion not to seek why in the scriptures, but rather to seek out patterns. Here, for one of the few times, we are told why. And the why is about God's treatment of Saddam and Gomorrah and whether or not Abraham should have foreknowledge of God's plans. And at least one thing that we should take from this is that God does not keep his plans from mankind a secret. 
He does not keep the reasons for his judgments on people and on nations secret. He doesn't keep the reasons for giving out blessing secret. And a second thing that we see is that God will, will, redo, will do his revealing and bring about his purposes almost exclusively now through his Hebrew people, beginning right here with Abraham, the first Hebrew. Well, when Abraham finds out God's plan to devastate Saddam, well aware that his nephew Lot is living there, he goes into a typical Middle Eastern bargaining session with God. But what we actually are seeing is many things. First, we're seeing that Abraham cares much about people and more than himself. And second, we are getting a glimpse into God's definition of justice and righteousness. And third, we're also getting a glimpse into God's mercy when justice or retribution would seem to be called for. Now, a fourth thing we see is absolutely fascinating. Repentance does not play a role in the story of Saddam and Gomorrah any more than it played a role in the flood story of Noah. Now, I've mentioned on a few occasions that, much to people's surprise, the notion of dying and going to heaven is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. Well, in fact, the entire concept of repentance is nowhere to be found yet in Genesis. And it's going to be some time before we see it develop. The only issue thus far revealed in God's justice system as regards mankind's behavior is, is that person righteous in God's eyes or not? The wicked remain wicked and the righteous remain righteous. We don't find Noah pleading with the wicked to repent. We don't find Abraham pleading with the wicked to repent. In Abraham's pleadings to Yahweh, it's not about whether the people who are doing wrong might repent and turn from their evil. It's only about whether those who are not doing wrong are going to be judged right along with those who are doing wrong. Now we also see that long before Moses and the law of Mount Sinai, God is applying some kind of universal standard to all human behavior. Now the Hebrews refer to this standard as the seven Noahide laws. And in this chapter, we see that Sodom has crossed over a line of wickedness that violates that standard and God's not going to tolerate it any longer. And since that line has been crossed, the only possible outcome is for God's wrath to be visited upon them. Now, the specifics of Saddam's sins can be and regularly are argued over. But what is clear is that they are moral, better maybe immoral in nature. Later, as Lot enters the picture again, we're going to get a couple of specific sins mentioned like sodomy and homosexuality. But we never do get a laundry list of Saddam's evil acts. Now, let me also quickly inject that Saddam was but the primary city, the government seat, if you would, of a five-city district, which was under common rule. 
Gomorrah was just one of those five cities. So when only the name Saddam is mentioned, it's, it's just that Saddam is representative of the whole district. When destruction was finally poured out, it was upon that entire district. Now, there have been all manner of allegorical sermons and teachings about the purpose of this verbal wrestling match that Abraham had with God. But, but here's the thing that I personally take from it. God does not destroy the righteous along with the wicked. Now, that's not to say that when God allows a conquering army to discipline his people, the righteous people don't get killed too. Now, what I'm talking about is when God pours out his supernatural divine wrath, like the flood, for instance, and pretty soon on Saddam and Gomorrah. The idea is that he doesn't allow the righteous to die along with the wicked when he pours out his supernatural wrath. This is a pattern of God's behavior that we can count on, and frankly, one that baffled the prophets and the sages. I mean, why, they often ask, does God allow the wicked to go ahead and prosper rather than judge them? And the answer, though mysterious most times, has something to do with their evil actions either being part of a stage in God's plan being fulfilled by means of that wicked activity or perhaps some benefit coming to his people by means of those wicked people's actions. Though, of course, it's certainly not the intention of the wicked people to benefit God's people. And, of course, it's the entire purpose for that near-future event that we call the rapture to save the righteous from the fate that awaits the wicked. Now, we can be certain that God is not going to pour out his wrath on the wicked and let his people also die in a supernatural destruction. Because that's simply not what God does. It's just not within his character. Now before we move on to chapter 19 and the destruction of Saddam and Gomorrah, let me point out a common misquote in the dialogue between God and Abraham. And it's this. The final bargaining number agreed to was ten innocent people had to be present for God to save Saddam and Gomorrah, not one. I've often heard people say if just one righteous person is around, God will not pour out his wrath. That's not what this says. It says it's ten. And we're going to find in later books of the Bible that ten is a common minimum number for a useful congregation size. And to this day, Jews generally will not conduct a service nor even pray in a group of less than 10 individuals. Now in Hebrew, this is called a minyan. M-I-N-Y-A-N. Minyan. So Yahweh was saying that providing there was a minyan in the midst of a wicked population, he would stay his hand of judgment. Now, the conversation is over. And it says in verse 33 that the Lord departed. Actually, the original Hebrew says Yahweh departed. Now, that Yahweh departed is something to keep in mind as we begin the next chapter, Genesis chapter 19. So, open your Bibles now 
to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, and we're going to read the first 14 verses and talk about that. The two angels came to Saddam that evening when Lot was standing at the gate of Saddam. Lot saw them. He got up to greet them and prostrated himself on the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please come over to your servant's house. Spend the night, wash your feet, get up early, and go on your way. No, they answered, We'll stay in the square. But he kept pressing them. So they went home with him, and he made them a meal, baking matzah for their supper, which they ate. But before they could go to bed, the men of the city surrounded the house, young and old, everyone from every neighborhood of Saddam. They called Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to stay with you tonight? Bring them out to us. We want to have sex with them. Lot went out to them and stood in the doorway, closing the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, don't do such a wicked thing. Look here. I have two daughters who are virgins. Please, let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them what seems good to you. But don't do anything to these men, since they are guests in my house. Stand back, they replied. You know, this guy came to live here, and now he's decided to play judge. For that, we'll deal with you worse than with them. Then they crowded in on Lot in order to get close enough to break down the door. But the men inside reached out their hands, brought Lot into the house to them and shut the door. Then they struck the men at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they couldn't find the doorway. The men said to Lot, Do you have any people here besides yourself? Whomever you have in the city, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, bring them out of this place because we're going to destroy it. Adonai has become aware of the great outcry against them and Adonai has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke with his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, Get up and leave this place because Adonai is going to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law didn't take him seriously. Well, in chapter 19, we get the answer to the question that is raised in chapter 18. Uh, chapter 18. Who are these three men who came to Abraham? Well, we've already learned that one of the three was God himself because his name was given to us. yud heh vav -Hey, Yahweh. Now, in the first verse of chapter 19, we are told that the other two are messengers. The Hebrew word used in this regard, malach, M-A-L-A-C-H, does not of itself mean angel. It means messenger, and it's most often used in the Bible as referring to a human messenger. It is from the context, that is, that these messengers blinded the men of Saddam and then performed other supernatural feats, that we come to understand that they are actually heavenly messengers, spirit beings, what we term as angels. Now, let me warn you. We're going to get into some pretty difficult territory this week and next as well. And I'm going to challenge some doctrines that have been taken as truth for centuries. But as so many doctrines of men are, they bear little relation to what is said in the Holy Scriptures. And yet, I also want you to know 
that when it comes to mysterious things like the nature and the essence of God, the best any teacher can offer you is very inadequate. So, with that understanding, what can we learn about Yahweh and or about angels from this event we just witnessed? For one thing, angels have the ability to take on physical dimension. In fact, if we can point to the one concrete thing we can learn about angels from this scripture, it is that usually they take on human form when they interact with humans. Now, generally speaking, the humans in whatever Bible story we happen to be talking about, they don't realize at first that these men they're seeing and talking to aren't really men at all, but rather they're angels. Often we will see that once the humans realize that these men are angels, fear sets in and the humans fall flat on their faces in worship or they literally faint from fright, which is apparently the main reason the angels take on human form in the first place. In other words, so that they don't quite literally scare humans to the point of utter disorientation or even death. Now, interestingly, while we of the church have had the tendency to call all spiritual servants of God angels, that's not really the case. Angels, messengers, malak, are apparently a somewhat lower spirit being who don't always have free will nor freedom. They're sent from heaven to do specific tasks under specific orders from Yahweh. They have no latitude or option to exercise their personal wills in this matter. That is why they are, indeed, messengers. Messengers don't create the message, they simply transport it. And the message can be in the form of destruction, of which they apparently can have almost unlimited force at their disposal to accomplish. So, angels are just certain specific spiritual beings and they're at the lower end of the spectrum. Now, at the upper end of the spectrum are the cherubim. These are beings who are literally God's closest servants. They are the beings who protect God's holiness and live in his presence. They're the ones that Ezekiel speaks of with those multiple faces and several wings. Now, cherubs are not angels. They are higher than angels, and they serve an entirely different purpose than angels. And there are other kinds of spiritual beings that are listed in the Bible as well, but we're not going to get into all that right now. I simply want you to understand that when we think of spirit beings, it's not that all spirit beings are simply one class or another of angels. Rather, angels are just one type of spirit beings, of which there are several types of spirit beings. But, what about this situation in our story of Abraham and Sarah, whereby Yahweh has a similar human form as the angels? You know, let's stop and think about that for a minute. Since Yahweh took on physical human form here, why didn't he just do the same thing with Yeshua? Or did he? In other words, the implication here is that this man form that God took on was done in the same manner that the angels took on a human form. That is, 
the human form they took on was not a real man in the sense of a man who started life as an infant and then grew and mature and then eventually got to be an adult and then was possessed or employed by God's spirit. This was not a man in its truest sense. This was not some unsuspecting flesh and blood man who was simply wandering along in normal life when suddenly God shows up, enters him, and takes over his body so that Yahweh could appear to Abraham. No, this was apparently an apparition of a man. A man who otherwise had never existed. Not a ghost, and yet not a man who came from his mother's womb, but a flesh and blood kind of apparition. Now, Yeshua, on the other hand, was born of a woman. He grew and matured as any normal child. He was part of Jewish society and, of course, eventually became an adult Jewish male. He was a singular and unique human person, as any of us in this room are. Just as there is not another Becky Bradford or Tom Gamble or a Patty Bryan that has ever been born or ever will be, so there is only one Yeshua of, Na of Nazareth, Messiah, who has ever been born or whoever will be born. But you know, Yeshua was not an apparition of a man like what appeared to Abraham, nor was he a regular man like you and I, whose physical form suddenly became a usable vessel for God Almighty. Rather, we're told, God's own pure essence substituted for what normally should have been a human male's seed and that pure essence of Yahweh impregnated Miriam, Mary. And the result was this composite being that we call Jesus. But his real Hebrew name was Yeshua, or even more correctly, Yahshua. Y-A-H-S-H-U-A, Yahshua. Now I say composite being because his father was God and his mother was human. Yeshua was about as unique as it gets. Now, as regards Yahweh appearing to Abraham as a man, I don't want to draw conclusions where there is simply no evidence that can lead us to a firm conclusion. But you know, I also want to state that I do not believe that this was Yeshua who appeared to Abraham. For one thing, the Bible calls this man Yahweh. Yet it's also difficult to just leave this strange appearance of Yahweh and the two angels without considering the implications rather deeply. Now I think the problem in dealing with the matter of Abraham, Yahweh, and the two angels is that we've created for ourselves a false modern construct of the Holy Trinity. One which is entirely absent, by the way, from the earliest days of the church. Okay. And in an effort to explain God, the more modern church says that he is composed of three persons. Now this three persons concept has tended to create in our minds a kind of vision of a God who has all the characteristics of a science fiction movie, like Independence Day, whereby we have a mothership, or in our case a fathership, 
which remains stationed at a distance from the Earth. And then we have a couple of very powerful but smaller vessels who are kind of a, an organic part of that mothership, but they can, when needed, be detached and go and do the bidding of the intellect that controls the whole entity. The smaller vessels are subservient to the mothership, even though they're a part of it. And so they bring the presence and power and authority of that alien mothership into contact with humans. Of course, there are also times that the mothership, all the parts of it, the whole thing, chooses to come to deal with men. Now, I don't think this understanding of who God is is very helpful to us at all. Right? I mean, our, our basic problem is that we're restricted to thinking in three, well, four really, dimensions. So we think of God in pieces. Various pieces and parts that together form the whole, the sum of the parts. We cannot envision, well, at least I sure can't, how something can be one, but more than one. Yet that's exactly what the Torah says God is. How can Yeshua be a man and be God at the same time? How can Yeshua be God on earth and God in heaven at the same time? How can Jesus be subservient to Yahweh, yet be able to say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? I mean, think about the enormity of that statement. Yeshua is basically saying, if you've seen the part, you've seen the whole. He also said that he and the Father are one. One in what way? Now let me state right here. I am not challenging the idea of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What I'm challenging is the way this idea has been generally presented to us and the way it has been structured. And in order to preserve that particular way or vision of the Trinity or doctrine, some things have been done to the translations of the Bible from Hebrew to all the other languages, including English, that perpetuate some notions that simply do not jibe with scripture. And perhaps the greatest lapse, the, the, the greatest error that allows this perpetual inaccuracy to continue concerns the use, or better yet, the non-use of God's name. Now, some of you who have been with me for a while have heard me say, that in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, God's name is used more than 6,000 times. Now, the Hebrew scriptures tell us that God's name is Yahweh. yud heh vav Yahweh. Now, long ago, Gentiles started using the word Jehovah as kind of a translation of Yahweh. Now, whether or not Jehovah is a fair and correct substitution for Yahweh is not the point of this dissertation. The point is, if you open your Bibles and start counting the times the word Yahweh or Jehovah is used, it's but a handful. Some Bible versions use God's name less than ten times. Others may approach a hundred, but that's about it. So, what happened? to those other 5,900 times God's name was used in the original Hebrew scriptures. Well, what happened was that God's name was substituted with the words Lord or God. 
Now, why this was done is also not the point. I just want you to realize, though, that what I'm telling you is true. And I'm not telling you something new nor radical. Matter of fact, this is not even disputed by Bible scholars, and it's not a secret. You can pick up any competent Hebrew Old Testament and look for the Hebrew word yud Hey vav Hey, which spells Yahweh or Jehovah, God's name, and count it up for yourself. But one question this leads to, and it likely won't be answered to anyone's satisfaction today, including mine, is this. Who or what is Yahweh? Is Yahweh God the Father, in the sense that the Godhead consists of the three elements that we call the Holy Spirit, Yeshua is the Messiah and Yahweh is the Father? Or is Yahweh the name for the total Godhead? The name for the sum of all the parts? Plus, we also find many names for God in addition to Yahweh. El Shaddai being the name for God in earliest use in the Bible. See, this problem doesn't really appear to be that much of a problem when God's name is replaced in our Bibles by the less specific words Lord and God. And this is because we have Yahweh being called Lord and Jesus, Yeshua, is also called Lord. So then just who is being referred to when the word Lord is used? Is it Jesus or is it Yahweh? Therefore, by using the word Lord, the distinctions between God and the Messiah kind of disappears. So, when our New Testaments refer to Jesus as Lord, and then we go back and look at an Old Testament prophecy that seems to be about the Messiah, and it too uses the word Lord, it's rather easy to assume that we can simply stuff Jesus' name in its place, and all the pieces fall together rather neatly. And in fact, that's exactly what's been going on for century after century. Ah, but there's a problem. 99% of the time in the Old Testament that our Bible translations say Lord, that is not what the original Hebrew Scripture said. The original Hebrew Scripture didn't say Lord. And it didn't say God. And it didn't say Adonai, which is just the Hebrew word for Lord. Rather, it said yud heh vav heh Yahweh, or Jehovah. Again, this isn't disputed among scholars. I'm not coming up with new information here, but I am bringing it into the light of day. Next week, we're going to take this just a little bit further and deal with other aspects of this that I hope will answer some questions for us and help us to think about God in perhaps a whole new light.